Today I want to talk about how real is the threat of falling short? How real is the threat of falling short? Last week we ended with a strong warning that the author of Hebrews gave to his readers that they should not repeat the mistakes of the past their ancestors, and fall short of entering the Sabbath rest of God. We read in Hebrews 4.1, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Kind of begs the question, don't you think? How real is the threat of falling short? A person like me who's, who grew up a perfectionist, I'm not anymore, just ask Colleen. <laughs> who grew up a perfectionist, would take words like that to heart <laughs> and be very worried. Oh my goodness, I could fall short. And so we're going to take a look at what the author of Hebrews says, kind of in response to this idea of a threat. Some of you know that our eldest son, Mitchell, entered into what I would call a grand gamble about seven years ago. He had to decide whether or not to commit the next ten years of his life, and the life of his wife, Kat, investing in a goal that despite copious hours of study, expense, emotional highs and lows, may or may not be realized. To become a professor of African history. They decided to go for it, and despite a lot of success to date, there's no guarantee that he will be a professor of African history. I ask you this morning, is this the kind of calculation that we make when we decide to become followers of Jesus Christ? Can we, despite our best intentions, a good faith commitment, only hope for the best? Well, I believe that the author, after giving such a strong warning to be careful that you don't fall short of entering the rest of God, qualifies what he has to say about that in the next few chapters. And so we're going to read from Hebrews 4, 14 to Hebrews 6, verse 20. The words are on the overhead. You can follow along if you like. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us, let us, then, approach God's throne of grace with confidence, 
so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever, forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now we're going to talk about Melchizedek uh, next week and moving forward. We're going to refer to this idea that Jesus is the high priest in a lot of detail. But for now, I'm going to skip over Melchizedek. Uh, but it, it'll be coming real soon. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and was designated by God to be the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to make clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by the time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by, constant, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. It's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no greater for him to swear by. He swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. 
And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to, to make the, the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So what does this passage have to do with the threat of falling short of God's Sabbath rest? an eternity in the presence of God. <coughs> I think I'd like to start off by taking a look at the character of those scripture describes, of those that are described as those who will not enter his rest. First we'll make reference to the people of Israel, the people that the author of Hebrews referenced earlier last week. We read about the people of Israel who did not enter into Canaan, the land of promise, or the place that God called his place of rest. They didn't enter in. And why didn't they enter in? Well, we read in Exodus 17. But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? So these people who had seen the miraculous exodus of their people from slavery in Egypt did not enter his rest because they were thirsty and couldn't trust that the God who parted the waters of the Red Sea would not let them die of thirst. And then from our passage today, the New Testament equivalent of those people that will not enter God's rest. In verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 4 to 6, we read, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away, to be brought back to repentance. What do you see as the common theme between the ancient Israelites? They're still ancient, aren't they? The ancient Israelites or Hebrews who are reading this book. Or us today who are reading this book, the book of Hebrews. What's the commonality? Well, the commonality in my mind is both have seen The greatness of God, both have been proven to by God how much he loves them and how much they can trust him, and yet they don't trust him. <laughs> right? The Israelites who were delivered from slavery miraculously didn't enter in to the rest of God. We 
who read the book of Hebrews and these initial readers who have tasted the goodness of God, have seen the greatness of God, have experienced how he has proved himself over and over again, still don't trust God. And so the bottom line that is the disqualifier, the thing that disallows people from entering into the rest of God is a lack of trust in God. People who will not put their life in the hand of God. They won't trust God. They are the people that will never enter his rest. It's a matter of trust. We read just after verses 4 and 5, verse 6, to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. What does that mean? They're not literally crucifying Jesus Christ over again. But if the crucifixion is nothing, <laughs> if, 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 it's, if it's nothing short of God's demonstration of his love for us. He has proved himself through the cross, how much he loves us, and how trustworthy he is. If nothing else, that's what it is, but we know that it's a lot more. But if, if, if you still don't trust God, having witnessed and understood the crucifixion and the resurrection, then quite frankly, you may as well Christ, you may as well crucify Christ again because he's worthless to you. <clears throat> he's worthless to you. He's nothing. Because it's not enough that he did that. It's not enough. And so these are the people that will not enter his rest. Let's just think about the drastic difference between the people who will enter his rest and those who won't. One is convinced and trying. One is convinced of God's worthiness, his, his, uh, his trustworthiness, his faithfulness, who he is, what he came to do, what he accomplished. They're convinced of that, and they're trying to live accordingly. The other aren't convinced that Christ, despite everything he's done, is worthy of their putting their lives in his hands. It's a stark difference between those two groups of people, isn't it? It's sort of like this. I know alcoholics and they'll tell you that the first big step is admitting you have a problem. Admitting you're an alcoholic. And so, like the addict who recognizes they have a problem, and, and, and even though they continue to fail, <laughs> they're at least convinced they have the problem and they're trying 
to do better. Compare that to the alcoholic who denies even having a problem. It's that stark a difference between those who are convinced that God can be trusted and therefore worthy of my life and those who still don't accept that God is worthy of me putting my life in his hands. <coughs> Huge difference between the two. So, the author goes on to talk about reasons for having confidence that you will not fall away. So first, we have this picture of the two types of people, people that are convinced, those who aren't, and now he gives reasoning or reasons why we can have confidence that we are not <coughs> going to fall away. So here's the four reasons for confidence that I find in this passage. Immediately following the warning that he gives not to fall short of entering his rest, he starts talking about a high priest. He says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us. He likens Jesus to the Mosaic law priesthood or the priest who served the people of Israel before the new covenant in Jesus Christ. He says in verse 5-2, and I don't have this on the overhead, he says these words, he, as in the priest from the Old Covenant, is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. So, he's trying to convey this idea that Jesus is like those high priests in that he walked in their shoes, he's lived the human experience, He's been subjected to temptation. He knows the hardness of life. And therefore, he's compassionate. He is gracious. And so, yeah, some will fall away. Those who won't put their trust in God, even though he's proven himself over and over again, will fall away. But if you trust in God and are willing to give your life to Him, you're not going to fall away. And as a matter of fact, here's proof. The first proof that He gives is that you have a high priest who's advocating for you, who's on your side, who's in your corner. He knows what it is to live a life in this, on this earth in these times. He is for us. He's not against us. Now here's one that is a real challenger for me. The second reason that we need to have confidence 
that if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, if we trust him, we are not going to fall away and we will enter his rest. It's a real challenger for guys like me who grew up being perfectionists, who saw failure as life and death. To fail was a disaster. It was horrible. It was the end of the world to fail. Well, I read from this passage of Scripture in Hebrews that failure is not a disqualifier. Thank God. Failure is not a disqualifier. He says, we have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you're no longer, you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by the time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. These Hebrews are immature Christians. <laughs> they're not growing up. They're not progressing. But they're Christians, nonetheless. And it's disappointing that they're not progressing, but they're not disqualified because they're not progressing and because they fail. They're not disqualified because they fail. Some of you are having a hard time with that. Because you got the gospel screwed up in your heads. You still think it has to do with what you do. We have a just God. That is the third point. We have a just God. And even though, he says in Hebrews 6, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we're convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. There it is. <laughs> even though you're immature and you're not progressing and you're going nowhere fast, I don't have any question about your salvation. You're saved. You're stunted. <laughs> You're not progressing. You're immature. You need to give yourself a shake because you need to start. You, we need you as teachers. We don't need you as just another person who's a drag on us. We need you to help. But as far as your salvation is concerned, we're, we don't have any doubts about that. So even though we speak like this, dear friends, we're, we're convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God, you see, is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love that you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. And this is where people can start to get messed up in their idea of the gospel. Because they'll look at that passage and they'll say, you see, it has to do with my works. If I work hard enough, or I do enough good stuff, I will enter the rest of God. That's not what he's saying here. Because that denies the rest of Scripture. That's an anomaly. And so you have to look at a passage of Scripture like that, and you say, well, how does it fit into the breadth of Scripture? Not take it out and put it over here and say, you see, we're saved by works. 
if we do enough good stuff, because it says there in Hebrews, that one passage, no, that's not how it works. I'll give you a way to interpret that that is in keeping with the breadth of Scripture. He is not saying that you have to prove <coughs> by your works that you have earned the right to enter his rest. He is saying your good works are evidence of your righteousness. And therefore, your failure to mature is not enough to cancel your righteousness. Remembering righteousness being a status that I have before God. It's like whether I got the passport or I don't. Whether I'm an apple and orange. Your failure to mature is not enough to cancel your righteousness or disqualify you from entering his rest. Your status is secure. Failure doesn't disqualify you. Lack of trust in God disqualifies you. If you're not willing to put your life in the hands of the man who walked the waters, still the waters, thank you. If you're not willing to do that, then you don't deserve to enter his rest. If, however, you have put your life in his hands and you, like me, habitually sin, let's be honest, our sin is habitual. <laughs> anybody else, anybody who doesn't accept that from themselves, you walked out of here now because you don't belong here. We are habitual sinners, we all sin, we're all trying not to sin. We're trying to get better. We're trying to become like Christ, but we do habitually sin still. That does not disqualify us from entering the rest of God. And here's another reason why, and the fourth reason for confidence that we will enter his rest and not fall away is this. God's promise. God's word. <laughs> We read here in Hebrews 6, God did this so that by two unchangeable things, I don't understand that. <laughs> I don't know a lot of people that do understand that, but anyways, what those two unchangeable things are. If you know, explain it to me later. Um, by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure, it enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. There, once again, referring back to Christ as our priest. And this gets to the heart of the question, doesn't it? As a matter of fact, it gets to the heart of the big question of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can have confidence in the nature of God. He is faithful. We can count on Him. Can God be trusted? That's what it comes down to. It's my decision as to whether or not God can be trusted. Isn't that what caused the first sin? Adam and Eve. 
What did Satan say to Eve? Did God really say you would die if you ate that fruit? And that little seed led to distrust in God. Is God a man of his word or not? And she decided at that moment, he's not. <laughs> he's not. God is trustworthy, he has promised, and he is faithful. I want to say a final word. Because I really believe your concept of God is so critical to this idea of whether or not you will enter the rest of God. And I want to, I want to show you a word. That's a great word. You don't use it very much, I'm sure. Capricious. Capricious. I think for the longest time, my God was capricious. Capricious means this. Given to sudden and unaccountable changes of mood or behavior. A capricious and often brutal administrator. And then there's some synonyms. Fickle, inconstant, changeable, variable, unstable, mercurial. Volatile, erratic, vacillating, irregular, inconsistent, fitful, arbitrary. If you see God as capricious, you really don't have any reason to be confident that you will enter the rest of God. But God is not capricious. God is faithful. He has proven himself over and over again. He proved himself over and over again to those Israelite slaves living in drudgery in Egypt. He proved over and over and over and over again. And then when it got to the point where they got thirsty, they said, God is not trustworthy. And we have experienced the goodness of God. We know him. To be a God who died on a cross and rose again. Who wants to be with us. He lived a life on earth so that we could see how to live our lives. He's done everything that needed to be done. Everything needed to be done. And yet we have the gall to say he is not trustworthy. If that's your conclusion, you will not enter his rest. It is only those who have come to the point where they recognize that God is trustworthy and that he is worthy of our lives. They will enter the rest of God. They will spend eternity with God. Those who do not enter his rest will enter into, and this is, from my perspective, as good a description of hell as any you will enter eternal unrest. You like your rest? I love my rest. Haven't been getting it too much. Got sciatic nerve problem right now. I want to rest so bad. I don't sleep at night because I don't have rest. <laughs> right? Think of eternal unrest. Never rest. Ever. If you don't trust God with your life and 
entirely. You will not enter into his rest. Let me just say this to close. Entering the Sabbath rest of God is not a crapshoot. In a sense, what my son is doing really is a crapshoot. He's invested 10 years of his life to become a professor of African history. And he might get out and never be a professor of African history. No matter how hard he works, no matter how good he is, he might not. It's a crapshoot. But the Sabbath rest of God is not a crapshoot. It isn't contingent on having the scales of your good works outweighing your failures. Let me just do this for you. When I approach the throne of God on Judgment Day, if there's more good works than bad, I'm in. I enter the rest of God. If it's the other way around, I'm a goner. That ain't the way it is, folks. It's not a matter of how good you are. Some churches you'd be shocked for saying that. It isn't about you and how good you are. It's about what he's done for you and the fact that you're covered in his righteousness. And it isn't contingent on some capricious God who hopefully will be gracious in a gracious mood when you approach his judgment seat. I hope he's having a good day when I get to the pearly gates. Oh, man. It's not like that. It has everything to do with your view of God. Is he trustworthy or not? If to you he is... All of the effort that you put in towards holiness have value because they prove your confidence in him. But you know what? If to you he is not trustworthy, no one would condemn you for eating and drinking and having merriment today because tomorrow you die. I would suggest to you that Jesus Christ has proven over and over again he is worthy. If you believe that he's for you and not against you, you will enter the rest of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, many of us can relate to these Hebrews who have come out of very legalistic situations in which works what's more important, really, than heart. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would rest in the fact that you simply want our hearts. Help us, Lord, as we consider how we feel about this and where we're at with this. I pray that you would give us wisdom. 
and that by your Holy Spirit you would convict us and help us to know if there's anything that we need to do about this idea of entering your rest, the Sabbath rest of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Yeah.